We've been in a series uh, for several weeks now called Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. And we've been in the thick of it, Adam. <laughs> Looking at all sorts of these really heavy topics and how this, this one doctrine, the image of God, has implications for so many of the issues we wrestle with today. But my hope is that you see just how vital the image of God is for a biblical worldview. How when we get this one thing right, so many other issues come into focus. We started the series at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. We saw that on the sixth day, God created mankind in his image, male and female. He created them. And we talked about the significance of having gender bodies and, and then what it means to live in a relationship to one another in marriage or in singleness. We talked about how being made in the image of God means we're made to reflect God, being like him in some ways, being his representatives on the earth. And it also means we were made to relate to God, having a relationship with him and finding our meaning and purpose in him. But ultimately, the, the image of God speaks to the unique dignity and worth of every person. It tells us that there's something given by God to each person, something different than God's other created things like plants or animals or stars, something that, that makes every person uniquely valuable. C.S. Lewis has the best quote on this special status that we hold as image bearers. He's writing about how every person we encounter will live on into eternity and how we should view people's significance in light of that. Listen to what he said. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. There's a lot to think about there. He says there's no ordinary people. Every person we encounter, stranger or friend, our coworkers, our spouses, our children, even our enemies have been made in God's image. They reflect God in a uniquely powerful way, and they are destined, based on a relationship with Jesus, to spend eternity somewhere. And actually believing that would completely change the way we think about, talk about, and treat the people we see every day. We've already seen how it impacts the way we think about tough topics like abortion, and people with disabilities, and those in poverty, and those of different races and ethnicities, and those who are refugees and immigrants. And today, I want us to think about what the image of God means for another heavy topic, the topic of violence. It's another big, very broad topic, but the image of God has huge implications for it. Think with me back to the beginning of Genesis. We see man and woman. Adam and Eve made in the image of God, then we see them fall into sin. And all the creation is cursed as a result. The image is tarnished, but it's not lost. Then what is the first big tragedy we see after the fall? It's Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, right? Very first children in the Bible, very first siblings, and one murdered the other in cold blood. 
sin, the, the tarnishing of the image of God led to violence, to harming another image bearer. And that story has repeated itself endless times throughout history up to this present day. In one sense, to study history is to study how people have hurt other people over and over again. From war to genocide, from abuse to assault, from terrorism to riots, we live in a violent world. And lately, we've been reminded of that again, haven't we? So how does the doctrine of the image of God speak to the issue of violence? And what does that mean for us as followers of Jesus today? That's what I want us to see. And as we've done throughout this series, we're going to do that by answering three questions about Jesus. Uh, Jesus was and is the image of God. He's a perfect expression of humanity. He's our Savior, our Lord, and our model for how to live. So so let's start with our, our first question. Number one, what did Jesus teach? What did he teach? Pretty much everything Jesus taught on the topic of violence can be summed up like this. Don't do it. I mean, that's pretty pretty, pretty much that simple. He's like, stop, it's bad, don't do it. I mean, Jesus famously, he taught nonviolence. Some of his most often quoted words throughout history are, turn the other cheek, which we'll look at in a bit. But why was Jesus so against violence? Why was he against violence Completely, all the time, in every situation? In other words, was Jesus what we would call a pacifist? Many of our Christian brothers and sisters would argue that he was, especially those from a Mennonite or Amish tradition. As pacifists, they would argue that any form of violence, including war and even self-defense, are not the way of Christ. Historically, they are what's called a conscientious objector, meaning they're excused from serving in the military due to their conscience. And I want to reiterate, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Though many of us might disagree with them, they're not heretics. I think there's actually a a strong argument to be made for pacifism, especially when you look at the teaching of Jesus. And I believe we could stand to learn some things from those folks. But one thing we need to understand is that Jesus came to the earth at a particular time and a particular culture. In many ways, he was correcting the Jewish understanding of the Messiah and his kingdom. You see, in first century Judaism, there was an expectation that this Messiah who was coming, that he would be an earthly king with an earthly kingdom, and that he would use violence to destroy Israel's enemies and reign physically over the earth in Jerusalem. That's what the people were looking for and expecting. So when Jesus showed up, they really struggled to understand his mission. And you see this especially with the disciples. They're constantly wanting Jesus to ride in on a white horse and rain down fire. And they're stunned when Jesus spends time with the weak and the helpless, when he washes feet, when he loves his enemies rather than defeats them. We see this most clearly in the way Jesus willingly went to his death. I mean, this was the last chance Jesus would have had to exert this this messianic authority that everybody thought he was supposed to have over the enemies of the Jewish people. But but look at this exchange that Jesus has with Pilate while he's on trial. This is John chapter 18. Look at verses 33 to 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? I noticed this, this situation Pilate's trying to reckon with this idea that Jesus is a king. How can you be a king when your own kingdom has delivered you over to be killed? You must be a pretty weak, worthless king. And Jesus knows what Pilate's thinking, so he corrects him. He says, no, 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 no. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, we'd be scrapping. We'd be fighting. Then I wouldn't be delivered over to you. And Jesus, he, he's been trying to show people that he came to bring a different kind of kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. That his goal was not to destroy Israel's physical enemies, but to destroy their spiritual enemies. He came to reign not in the physical temple in Jerusalem, but in the heavenly temple over all creation. So he says, this is why my servants are fighting, don't you think? If I was going to set up an earthly kingdom here that we'd be going to war with you, we wouldn't be taking this nonsense. Here's why we're not fighting. We're talking about a totally different kind of kingdom. Here's how we can sum up the answer to this first question. Jesus taught that violence doesn't accomplish kingdom purposes. Jesus is distinguishing between two different kinds of kingdoms, an earthly kingdom and a heavenly one. When it comes to the, the heavenly kingdom, it's advanced not with violence, but with truth. Its purpose is to make disciples of all nations, not subjects and captives. Its goal is peace, not war, unity, not division, healing, not harm. But there is another kind of kingdom, and there that's the earthly kingdom. This is why I believe, as probably most Christians do today, that living in a fallen world sometimes requires earthly kingdoms to use force for justice and peace. And that kind of rare but acceptable violence is given to the government and approved state actors. I believe this view becomes more clear when you look at the entirety of Scripture's teaching on violence. Uh, sometimes we, we tend to pit Jesus against Paul or Jesus against the Old Testament. Now, this is one flaw of having red letters in your Bible it might cause someone to believe that the recorded words of Jesus are more so the words of God than the rest of Scripture. But we know all the Bible is God-breathed, and since Jesus is God, that means every letter in the Bible is a red letter. The key text on this topic about how earthly kingdoms can use violence for good is Romans 13. If you remember, we walked through the book of Romans we spent a whole sermon on this text, but let's just think about it again briefly. It'll be on the screen if you can see it. Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. Apostle Paul writes, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he, it's the government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You may remember this text comes right after Paul saying in Romans 12 that he says, do not repay evil with evil. Do not avenge yourselves. Serve your enemies. He says, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Then Romans 13 comes right after that to explain how vengeance comes to the Lord, how God brings justice. And Paul explains how the government has been given to bring order to society, to promote good and to punish evil. The state does not have free reign to do whatever they want and harm people for no reason, but it does have the God-given right to bring retribution in the form of violence for the sake of justice. That means there is a time when it is acceptable to enter into war and actually take life to preserve life. Christians have historically argued for this with what's called just war theory. It's a way to determine when a war is just or not. And let me just tell you, most wars are not just wars. This also means it's okay, it's even honorable for Christians to serve in the military, to serve as police officers, and to serve in the prison and justice system. As representatives of the state or government, they are allowed to use force to protect others and enact justice. Point is simply, Jesus is not saying violence is always wrong. While God did not design his creation originally to have death or pain or harm, we live in a fallen world. And sometimes that requires justice, self-defense, or defending others. However, let's go back to our original point. And let me hammer on that for just one more minute, because I'm guessing most of you probably agree with what I just said. But in American culture, I think we too often swing too far the other way from pacifism, and we glorify violence and destruction. That's not the way of Christ either. While the government has the right to execute justice, you and I, on a personal level, don't. While earthly kingdoms can fight their enemies, and sometimes that is necessary, you and I are called to love ours. So we, you and me, should practice nonviolence. We should seek to live out and promote peace because Jesus taught that violence does not accomplish kingdom purposes and we belong to his kingdom first. That means our goal is world transformation, not world domination. That means our weapon is our Bibles and our battle takes place in the prayer closet. Here's our second question. Number two, what did Jesus do? Look, Jesus, no doubt about it, he was a peaceful person. He held children in his arms and blessed them. He was kind to those who had been mistreated. He was called the Prince of Peace. He told his disciples this in John 14, 27. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. But it's because of these things that, unfortunately, Jesus has sometimes been, been thought of and portrayed as a hippie. Like he was just always speaking in this poetic whisper. And like he liked to lay in fields of daisies and play the ukulele at dusk, you know. But here's the other side of Jesus we need to consider. 
Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple with a whip and he flipped over their tables. He spoke incredibly sharp to the Pharisees, calling them fools, snakes, and hypocrites, amongst other things. And he said this in Matthew 10, 34. He said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Look, I'm not saying that Jesus liked to get into back alley fist fights or was ever really violent with people or anything like that. I'm simply saying we need to be cautious in picturing Jesus as singing Kumbaya around the campfire every night. All right, we gotta have some balance here. And in light of that, here's how we can answer the second question. What did Jesus do when it came to violence? Here's our answer. Jesus modeled radical trust in God. Uh, let's look at an example of this. If you want to flip with me to Matthew chapter 26, this is the beginning of the violence that would be committed against Jesus. This is the night he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was betrayed. He was arrested. And watch how this plays out. Matthew 26, look at verses 47 to 54. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into his place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Uh, we know from the other gospel accounts that this was Peter who struck the servant, of course. And to be honest, I'm not sure we can really blame him for his reaction. Think about it. Here's his master, right? The man he has given his life to follow and serve. He's, he's being unjustly arrested. He's not going to allow them to just take Jesus out like that. So he uses violence. He pulls out the sword. He goes for the head. We also know from the other gospels that Jesus heals the servant's ear right there on the spot. And then Jesus says two things. First off, he says, put the sword away. He says, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. In other words, violence isn't going to solve this. It's only going to lead to more bloodshed. So Jesus rebukes a violent act. He, he restores the person who was harmed, and he says generally that violence is not God's answer. Then he says, if I wanted to take these guys out, Peter, I got a lot better weapons at my disposal than your measly sword. Right? I got armies of angels I could call on if I wanted to, but I'm not doing that because that's not the plan. And this sets off the entire series of events that led to Jesus' death, where he's beaten, spit on, mocked, nailed to a cross, and hanged to death. Every step of the way, he could have fought back. And who would have blamed him? He was God. He was innocent. He was facing the most painful death imaginable, and yet he willingly allowed it to be done. Even when they tempted him on the cross, saying, if you're really the Son of God, save yourself. He stayed. Jesus modeled radical trust in the face of violence, and we're called to do the same. 
We need to understand that this is completely contrary to what the world says and what our flesh craves. We naturally think, hey, if someone hits you, you hit them back harder. You don't start a fight, but if you get in one, you better finish it. We pride ourselves in independence and toughness and not letting anyone push us around. Don't be a wimp or a doormat. Stick up for yourself. Friends, that's not the way of Jesus. That's not what he modeled or taught his followers. Rather, he said this in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did you catch that? Jesus says, you're not weak when people revile you. You're not a wimp when others persecute you. You're actually blessed by God. You should rejoice because that's the way it's always been for God's people. He says this in Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Did you catch that one? He says, you got an enemy? Don't hate him. Love him. Love him. Don't fight him. Pray for him. It's completely backwards. This makes no sense according to the world, but this is the way of Jesus. And this is what radical trust in God looks like. It leaves vengeance and justice up to God, not you. This is what Paul said in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is again. Paul said, you got enemies? I want you to feed them. I want you to give them a drink. I want you to do good to them. Let God take care of the rest. Here's our third and last question. Number three. What did Jesus command? And here's where we need to deal with perhaps the most radical teaching of all. It deals with how to respond when someone is violent toward you. Matthew 5, 38 through 42, it's the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Jesus first references here the Mosaic law concerning justice. This was a law given to Israel as a nation to determine a just and fair punishment. You harm someone's eye, you lose your eye. You take someone's life, your life's taken from you. And Jesus is not canceling out those laws. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. We've already seen that the Bible affirms the role of government to enact justice. Rather, Jesus is speaking about the way we respond personally to those who harm us or demand from us. He's speaking about the way his followers should respond to those who 
take advantage of us. And he says, essentially, let them. Let them. And don't just let them, but give them more than they asked for. To slap someone on the cheek in this time was like the ultimate insult. So he says, rather than insult them back, offer up your other cheek. We see the same thing with giving up your cloak, going two miles when only one is demanded. Why would Jesus say this? What is his point? This is more than just nonviolence. This is more than just not getting even. This is denying yourself, laying down your rights for the sake of another. Here's how we can sum it up. Jesus commanded us to value the lives of others more than our own. And this is something we see Jesus talk about over and over. When the world says, protect your life, Jesus says, lose it. When the world says, fight for your rights, Jesus says, give them up. When the world says, you're valuable, Jesus says, treat others the way you want to be treated. Get down and wash their feet. And this all stems from understanding people, all people, as being made in the image of God. When you see that every single person, even your enemy, even the person who hates you, even the person who hurts you, is an image bearer of God just like you, that they have inherent dignity and value and worth just like you, that is going to determine how you treat them, especially when it comes to harming them or helping them. So let's bring all this home this morning. Let's, Let's close by thinking about this on a practical level. You're probably thinking, like I am this morning, I'm not a violent person. You know, I've never been in a fight. We live in a really safe community. This isn't really something I need to think a lot about or we need to think about. I want to just give you four questions to consider this morning in light of what we've heard about the image of God and violence. Just think about these for yourself. Here's the first question to think about. Number one, Am I a person of peace? Am I someone who generally seeks out peace when there is conflict? When there's a fire, do I pour on water or add gasoline? Do I promote peaceful outcomes? Am I the type to blow up and explode in anger when someone wrongs me? Does everyone else around me walk on eggshells? Do I cause others to be anxious or am I someone who eases others' burdens? Do people who know me best think of me as exuding the fruit of the Spirit, which one of those is peace? Am I a person of peace? Here's the second question I want you to consider. Number two, I may not harm someone physically, but what about my words? Words may not be violence, but they can cause harm and they can certainly lead to violence. So do my words build up or tear down? Do they fan flames or do they ease tensions? Do I speak of other people knowing they are immortal? As C.S. Lewis said, do I speak to them as someone who bears the image of God? Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, you've heard that it was said that those of old you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says the consequences for murder and anger are one and the same. 
Anger is the heart problem that leads to murder. Calling someone a fool, insulting them, is liable to the same judgment as physical violence. How should that affect the way you talk about and talk to other image bearers? Here's a third question to consider. Number three, how do I think about those I hate, or as Christians we'd say, strongly dislike? Guys, violent actions don't spring up out of nowhere. They often begin with thoughts of anger or hatred. We imagine violence in our heads. We might even dream of hurting someone who has really made us mad. When we think that way, we are dehumanizing that person. We are making them less than a human. We are denying the image of God in them, which is really to deny God. So how do you think about people? Even like groups of people, people who are on the opposite side of you politically or people who have done something bad or harmful in the world, do you think of them in ways that would lead to violence if you were to act on them? And is that okay for a follower of Jesus? Here's a fourth and last question to consider, number four. Do I ultimately trust God to be my protection and bring me justice? Where do you ultimately place your trust for your life? Though we live in a relatively safe place compared to many in the world, and though we are extraordinarily blessed to live in the community we do with all of our amazing resources, any one of us could be a victim of violence. Our children could be victims of violence. Who will we trust? Look, there's nothing wrong with owning a gun having a security system, putting up cameras, playing it safe, but is that where you place your trust? There's nothing wrong with being wise and wanting to protect your family, but when you lay down to sleep at night, who do you trust? When your home is robbed, who do you trust? When your life is threatened, who do you trust? We live in a violent, fallen world. It's inevitable, but we have a God who protects, a God who brings justice, and a God whose kingdom will never fail, will you trust him? Will you choose his kingdom over the kingdom of the world? That's the question. Would you bow with me in prayer?